Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, prayer is beyond any question the highest activity of the human soul. Man is at his greatest and highest when upon his knees he comes face to face with God. Prayer is how we communicate with God. It's our direct line to the creator, the all-powerful, all-seeing, all-knowing, almighty God. It's how we tap in to his power. And in addition to his word, prayer is how he delivers that power and wisdom and provision and direction back to us. It's the communication, the, the conduit through which we exchange our questions for his answers, our needs for his knowledge, our lack for his supply, our, our confusion for his clarity, our sorrow for his joy, our hurt for his healing, and our weakness for his strength. And you understand, he, he wants to provide all of that for you. He does. Right? It's not like we have to coax God into responding to our prayers. No, God is waiting for us to draw near to him in humility and reverence and worship, and when necessary, in repentance. And then to share every burden and every need, every victory and every defeat, every idea and every question. He wants us to give all of it to him so that he can pour all that you need and more back into your life. Okay? It is God's desire to bless you with all that you need to be faithful to him in this world. It's his desire to give you everything you need to be faithful, to live a faithful life to him in this world, right? As a father and now a grandfather, what I want more than anything for my kids is for them to become everything that God created them to be, to not only recognize who they are in Christ, but to fully realize who they are in Christ. And so as their father, right, because I have this great desire to see that happen, I offer them guidance and instruction, and I teach them skills and give them resources. Every good thing that I can give them, I give them to help them become everything that God created them to be. But listen, at the end of the day, they have to do something with all of that, right? It's my responsibility as a father to equip my kids for this life. It's their responsibility to make the most of what I've given them to be faithful with what they've been given, because look, if all we do is receive that guidance and instruction and teaching and those skills and resources without acting on any of that, well, then they'll always be limited to some degree when it comes to reaching their fullest potential in life. It's part of our job as parents to pour that into them, but they have to choose to respond to that. Listen, it's the same for us and our Heavenly Father. He's given us His Holy Word, His Holy Church, and His Holy Spirit to guide us and teach us, to equip us, and to empower us so that we can become all that He created us to become. But at the end of the day, we're responsible for what we do or don't do with all of that. James, the brother of Jesus, said, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from heaven above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. James 1.17. In other words, whatever you have that is good in your life, you have because of God. Everything good in your life comes from God. And so the obvious question is, what do you plan to do with it? What do you plan to do with the guidance and instruction and skills and resources that he's blessed you with? Because I'll tell you, if all you do is receive good gifts and then keep all of that to yourself, right? If you don't use what he's given you for the purpose it was actually intended for, well, then you'll never fully realize the potential that he wove into your spiritual DNA before he spoke this world into existence. 
The Apostle Paul put it this way. He said, where his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2.10. We talked about it last week. When Paul says that we should walk in them, the word walk, by the way, that's one of Paul's favorite words. He uses it all throughout his writing. In the ancient Greek, it's the word peripiteo. It was a reference to how a person conducted their entire life, how you lived, how you occupy your time. And so that phrase actually became a Hebrew idiom, an ancient Hebrew saying that was a picture of a person's life. It pictured a person's life as a road that one would travel along. And so Paul's saying, look, you were created to do the work of Christ. Your entire life and everything you've been given is supposed to be exhausted in the service of Jesus Christ. In the same letter, he went on to say, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. He's talking about you and me. When each part, when each one of us is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. We talked about that last week as well. The fact that God gives us his word, his truth and love to equip us for growth. But listen, it's only when each part is working properly. It's only when we act on his word that we actually grow and become all that he created us to be. So look, if you ever wonder what you might be able to accomplish in the future with whatever you believe God is going to give you, Just look at what you're accomplishing now with what he's already given you. It's a dead giveaway. If you are accomplishing much for Christ now with whatever he's given you to work with, then you will accomplish even more in the future as he continues to add more and more of those good things to your life. But I'm telling you, the other part is also true. If you do very little for God with what you have now, you will do very little for God when you have more later. And if you're thinking, well, I don't want to do something, you know, that, until I know it will succeed. Well, as Mother Teresa said, one of my favorite quotes, God has not called me to be successful. He's called me to be faithful. God didn't call you to be successful. He called you to be faithful. Whether or not you're successful is up to him. Whether or not you're faithful, well, that is entirely up to you. When we started this church, we had 12 people and no income. Zero. Five of those people, by the way, were me and my wife and our three kids. We didn't have everything we needed to start a church, not by a long shot, but we started it anyway because that's what God called us to do. And as we've been faithful, he's given us more and more and more to work with. Been far from perfect, but we've done our level best to be faithful to the call of God, and he's continued to bless the church. Look, I hope that never changes, but the truth is, when we started the church, we only had to get 12 people on board with God's plan. And Actually, it was only nine people because my three kids didn't have a choice. Today, we have several hundred people. And just so that you understand, throughout the past 11 years of pastoring this church, it points all along the way. I've had to stop and ask myself the question, what are you going to do with what you've been given now? Because you're asking me for something else. That's great. But what are you going to do with what you have now? And today, uh, here's the thing. I'm, I'm not just asking myself that question today. Today, I'm asking you. What are you going to do with what you've been given? Will you be faithful with all that he's given you, trusting him for the outcome? Or will you be comfortable with all that he's given you so you don't have to worry about the outcome? Because if you keep what he's given you, 
your resources and talent and time and energy and influence, if you keep all that to yourself, well, then you can build a pretty comfortable, risk-averse life for yourself. It's when you spend it all, when you give it all away in service to God and his people, that life can become uncomfortable at times and incredibly rewarding and fulfilling and purposeful and effective and influential and transformative at the same time. It all boils down to humbly seeking God in prayer. It's why we're taking these 21 days to deny ourselves during this Daniel fast that we're in and seeking God for all the things that he wants to provide for us. But listen, not just so that we can receive good things, but that we may be faithful in what we do with those good things. I say it all the time. An apple tree doesn't consume its own apples. An apple tree doesn't produce apples for itself. Right? The tree doesn't consume its own apples. It produces all those beautiful apples hanging off of it for everyone around it who need its fruit to be healthy and to grow. Listen, what's going to come out of these 21 days of self-denial, fasting, and prayer is going to be some significant answers. I can promise you that. Some direction, some provision, some blessing. And I'm just telling you, we need to prepare ourselves not only to receive all of that, but to be faithful in what we're going to do with all of that. Because listen, receiving from God is easy. Being faithful to do what he wants you to do with what you receive, well, that part isn't always so easy. And we're going to see that as we begin a new sermon series today, working our way through the book of Nehemiah. So let's turn there together to chapter 1. We're going to start with the first three verses, Nehemiah 1, 1 through 3. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th, uh, 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanan and I, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. So just a little backstory. In 586 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar came up against the Jews and laid waste to Jerusalem, killed its inhabitants, burned the temple and other buildings, broke down the walls of the city. By the way, it was because of their own apostasy, their own disobedience, and so the Lord's wrath was upon them. And as a result, the surviving Jews were taken into exile in Babylon, and then almost 50 years later, 539 BC, King Cyrus of Persia comes along and overthrows Babylon, absorbing all of that kingdom's territories, and ultimately uh, he controlled basically the entire Middle East. And then in the first year of, uh, of King Cyrus's reign over the new territories, God stirs up Cyrus so that he begins to release the Jewish exiles, allowing them to return to Jerusalem to rebuild. And all that starts at the end of uh, about Second Chronicles and continues through the book of Ezra, where in chapter 4, verses 7 through 23 of that book, we find the new king of Persia, Xerxes, crushing the Jews' efforts to rebuild, as he says, and I'm quoting, by force and power. That's the way Ezra puts it. So we're picking up the story in Nehemiah, who is the cupbearer to the king, when he encounters some of the men of Judah, and he asks about the state of the returning exiles and Jerusalem itself. And they described in Nehemiah the aftermath of this devastating crisis, and it was a shattering blow to Nehemiah because the city is reduced again to nothing more than ruins, and being surrounded by hostile neighbors, Jerusalem is alone, isolated. And so in response to this alarming news, Nehemiah immediately decides to take action. 
He's going to do something about it. And so the story of Nehemiah is basically his faithful response to what has happened to God's people, as we're going to see. So let's keep reading verses 4 through 7. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Uh, Nehemiah held a high position, first of all, in the Persian court. He was a cupbearer. In the ancient Near Eastern court, the cupbearer had direct access to the king and therefore uh, served as a personal confidant to the king and uh, often meant he had great influence with the king. And we have a, actually a fair amount of ancient literature. I was reading several of, of, of it this week in reference to this context. Fascinating uh, that supports this. In the third century BC, there's a book called the Book of Tobit. We're not talking about the Bible now. These are historical writings. It said that King Ershadon's cupbearer was second uh, only to him, the king, in his kingdom. And as a result, he had considerable sway in the Assyrian Empire. That's in Tobit chapter 1, verse 22. And then uh, there's an incredible uh, history of Herodotus. It's actually known to be foundational for Western literature. Uh, the history of Herodotus is a 4th century BC Greek biography. Written, uh, it's written in there that King Cambus, uh, one of his friends, he decided to do his best friend a personal favor. And, the, and the, the greatest thing he could do for him was to appoint his friend's son to be his cupbearer, the king's cupbearer. So, so for Nehemiah, a Jew... To have reached this high position in the Persian court, first of all, is no small achievement. And with it came no small amount of material blessings. Nehemiah was well off. He was comfortable, safe, wanting for nothing. And yet he was wrecked at the news that the rebuilding of Jerusalem came to a crushing halt at the hands of the king he served. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. In fact, Nehemiah mourned and prayed for four straight months, day and night, as he puts it, from the time he received the bad report from Hanani until uh, his opportunity to speak with the king about it, which we'll see in chapter 2 next week, fasting all along the way. And one of the remarkable things about that is the fact that Nehemiah had a natural bent for swift, decisive action. Uh, he was known as a man of action. We'll see that as we go throughout this book. Like, like this is the guy who's going to jump up right now and do something about it. And yet he spends four months mourning and praying and fasting before he does anything else, which you wouldn't typically expect from someone who's known for being quick to act, right? This, this tough man of action, but that's just it. Nehemiah was taking swift action. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. You see, Nehemiah knew the most powerful action that he could take in his hour of greatest need was to fast and pray. And what's the first thing Nehemiah, by the way, does in prayer? It's exactly what Jesus taught his disciples and us to do in Matthew 6, 9. When we pray, he worships the Lord. Nehemiah says, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. And of course, Jesus began his prayer with our Father in heaven. 
hallowed be your name. And then what is Nehemiah's prayer focused on after that? The first half of his prayer is focused on repentance for the unfaithfulness of God's people to keep their promise. And the second half, which we'll get into in a moment, is focused on recalling the faithfulness of God to never break his promises. You see, as wealthy, as powerful and respected and influential and comfortable as Nehemiah was, living and working in the royal court, second only to the king himself, here he is repenting, the successful man, repenting, taking personal responsibility, not only for the people of God as a whole, but for himself and his own family, for his own unfaithfulness, for what he had done with what he'd been given up to this point. You see, being faithful means being responsible. Responsible for what? Responsible for what you do with what you've been given. Not responsible for the outcome. That part is up to God. Your part is to be faithful to use the gifts and resources he's given you to whatever end he deems best. And listen, if you haven't been faithful with what he's given you, then being responsible, being faithful before anything else means humble repentance first. You have to take ownership for your part because, listen, you can't fix a problem until you acknowledge there is a problem and then deal with it. Right? You, you have to take ownership. Uh, the reason people primarily don't accept salvation is because they don't think they need saving. Right? They don't believe they're lost. You can't fix a problem in your marriage until you admit there is a problem in your marriage and then deal with it. You can't fix a problem with your kid's behavior until you admit there is a problem and then take ownership and deal with it. It's like that with God. You can go to him and you can ask him for something. But honestly, why would he give you something more if you haven't been faithful with what you already have? This is what was happening with Nehemiah and the Israelites. They wanted their inheritance back, but there was a problem that needed to be dealt with first. The fact that they were not faithful with what God had given them the first time. And Nehemiah recognizes the problem and immediately begins fasting and praying and repenting. He deals with the problem first. And again, I'm talking about being faithful. You understand, not successful. God didn't call you to be successful. He called you to be faithful. By the way, the reason that God calls you to be faithful is because he's faithful. If you read the story of Samuel, the great prophet and judge of Israel, who says to the people of God, fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he's done for you. 1 Samuel 12, 24. In other words, be faithful to God because he's faithful to you which again has nothing whatsoever to do with being successful, at least not according to this world standard of success. Listen, uh, if we're going to talk about the all-time most faithful people in human history, right? certainly those first followers of Christ, those early disciples, without question, they have to be a big part of this discussion. And yet according to early church history, the apostle Paul was beheaded. After everything he'd done, all the faithful ministry he'd done, he was beheaded. Peter was crucified upside down. Thomas was run through with four spears by soldiers in India. Philip was tortured to death in Asia Minor. Bartholomew was flayed to death with a whip in Armenia. Matthew was stabbed to death in Ethiopia. James, the son of Alphaeus, was stoned and then clubbed to death 
Matthias was burned to death. Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross in Greece. John was exiled to the island of Patmos after being boiled in oil in Rome. And James, the brother of Jesus and pastor of the church in Jerusalem, was thrown off the southeast pinnacle of the temple for refusing to deny his faith in Christ. It was more than a hundred foot drop, by the way, and yet he miraculously survived the fall, so his attackers beat him to death instead. Now let me ask you something. Were they successful? After being called and discipled by Jesus himself, filled and empowered with the Holy Spirit and sent out by the church, they were rejected, beaten, tortured, and brutally killed. Is that a picture of success? Is that what you envision when you think about what success looks like for your own life? I can answer that for you. No way. According to the standards of this world, those early followers of Christ were not successful people, and yet without question, without question, they were faithful people because they understood what God was looking for from them was faithfulness, not successfulness. And therein lies one of the all-time great misunderstandings of the modern church because today we equate being successful with being faithful. And as a result, listen, you can become a wildly successful person who believes in Jesus Christ while living a woefully unfaithful life. Sometimes without even realizing it. Because in modern church culture, we've come to view earthly success among believers as an indication of faithfulness. And yet God never called us to live successful lives. Again, at least not according to this world standard of success. No, he called us to live faithful lives. And in living that way, when we live faithfully for him, what we are promised is great blessings, which can come in many forms, some of which may very well be material, yes, and yet often they're not, as we see all throughout biblical scripture. Listen, it's important for us to remember that a faithful life in Christ does not always resemble a successful life in this world. A faithful life in Christ does not always resemble a successful life in this world. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. He did everything God told him to do his whole life, and he didn't make one single convert. Is that success? I don't know if he was successful, but he sure was faithful. Be careful not to confuse the two, because you can live a remarkably faithful life that looks like failure to this world. We need not look any further than the prophets, the apostles, and Jesus himself to see that. They mocked him while he was dying on a cross. A failure to this world. You can live a remarkably faithful life that looks like failure to this world. And yet on the flip side, you can experience tremendous success according to every metric this world uses to measure success with little to no fidelity, faithfulness to God's actual calling on your life. And so it's imperative to faithfully answering God's call in your life that you don't confuse worldly success with godly approval. Because although those two things, sometimes they'll coincide with one another, often they don't. Which raises some very important questions, by the way, for us today. If God calls you to live a life that in no way even remotely resembles this world's definition of a successful life, will you be faithful to live the life he's called you to anyways? If he calls you to serve people who don't always affirm you or respect you, or maybe at times they even reject you, will you be faithful to serve them anyway? 
If God calls you to stay committed to a relationship or to a ministry or to his church, even when it doesn't always make you feel the way you want to feel, will you be faithful to remain anyway? If he calls you to work, it's something to pursue something through prayer and labor that doesn't always provide for you what you think it should or what you believe you deserve. Will you be faithful to keep praying and working to that end anyway? Because look, at times in your life, I'm just telling you, at times in your life, he's going to call you to all of that and more. The question is, will you be faithful? When it's not what you want, when it doesn't feed your ego, when it doesn't make you feel the way you want to feel or give you what you believe you deserve, will you be faithful? Will you be faithful? Will you be faithful? Or will you walk away from that calling to pursue something else that offers better odds at being successful? By the way, success isn't bad in and of itself. You understand. In fact, Nehemiah, as we're going to see in a moment, prays for success later in this chapter, as we'll see. The point I'm making is the outcome, success, however you measure it, that's ultimately up to God. Our job is to be faithful no matter the outcome. And that starts with taking ownership of our own unfaithfulness first, if need be. Now listen, we've had to be very honest with ourselves as church leaders all along this whole journey of, of planting this church. Every time we've asked, for God, uh, asked God for something we don't currently have, we've always taken the time first to examine what we do currently have and what we've done with it. Every single time. This, this time is no different. I can tell you from experience, sometimes you won't like what you see. Sometimes you have to deal with your own unfaithfulness first. And it's only after that that God moves you from one level of ministry and responsibility to the next level of ministry and responsibility as we've experienced this past 11 years because God is always faithful to do his part. And so, so from, from 12 people to last week, 419 people, whatever it is, right? That has only happened. That outcome is all up to him as we've been faithful and all along the way, a lot of repentance and reworking and redoing and fixing things and confronting our own unfaithfulness. Now listen, for you, as you deny yourself the foods you've cut out during this Daniel fast, and you begin to feel the effects of it, <laughs> man alive. I, I've, some things have come out of my mouth this week that I never thought I would hear myself say in my life. Man, I can't wait to get my hands on some of that hummus. Brother, I didn't know what hummus was before we started this. I'm, I'm looking at, I'm like, can you fry, like deep fry banana bread? I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of everything. Starving. What in the world? Listen, as you deny yourself, whatever you're denying yourself of, whatever foods you cut out of your diet, and you feel the effects of that, it brings you to a low place, a place of humility. That's the whole point of fasting. It brings you to a place of humility. That experience is supposed to not only drive you closer to Christ, but to an honest, close examination of yourself, your motives, and what you've done so far with what's been given to you. It's called faithfulness, and it's what he's asking for from each of us. I recently heard Larry Elder in an interview say, you're not in control of the outcome, but you're 100% in control of the effort. Let's finish the story for today. Verse 8 to the end of the chapter. 
Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Okay, so Nehemiah knows what needs to be done. The king has to be convinced to allow the Jews to rebuild their city and return to their homeland. And if anyone is in a position to make that request, it would be Nehemiah. But listen, the risk couldn't be any higher. Because by making that request, he's directly going against a decision the king has already made, which means in the king's eyes, this could very easily be seen as a deep betrayal by his closest confidant, right? Which could spell even further disaster for the Jews and, of course, Nehemiah himself. So what does Nehemiah do? In the second half of the prayer, he begins recalling the promises of God. In fact, in just this part of the prayer, Nehemiah quotes the Old Testament scripture, particularly Deuteronomy, over and over and over again. He was clearly a student of scripture, and clearly he trusted God to do what he said he would do in his word. And so Nehemiah appeals to heaven, just like, interestingly enough, the Lord's Prayer does in Matthew 6. It's a matter of setting Nehemiah and our prayers in the proper perspective, recognizing the ultimate power of God to do what he's promised he will do, because God is always faithful to do what he's promised, no matter how daunting or difficult the vision before us is. You understand being faithful means trusting God for the outcome, even when the outcome you desire seems impossible. Right? Because what Nehemiah was asking God to do couldn't be any more impossible in his context. They had already tried to rebuild, and yet not only were they surrounded by people who wanted them to fail, the very king they were serving and whose rule they were living under crushed their efforts to continue. Now, how would he all of a sudden change his mind, right? How would Nehemiah even have an opportunity to ask the king to do such a thing, to reconsider his earlier decree? And furthermore, how would they overcome the surrounding populations who were against them, not to mention, where's the money and supplies going to come from to finance this massive project? See, none of it makes any sense or seems even remotely possible. But Nehemiah trusted God to do the impossible, and so must we. And we can in Matthew 19, 26, Jesus said, with God, all things are possible. He didn't say only the things we believe are possible are possible. He said all things are possible with God. And so when he commands us to take our first step in a new direction, into a new ministry or a new relationship or a new church building, in our case, or into a new city or a new job, you, you get the idea? He says, look, prepare yourself for this because everything is about to change. And you're going to have to be willing to do what may seem impossible to you right now, but you can trust me because with me, all things are possible. So what are you going to do with what I've given you? See, it's never been a matter of God's ability to make the impossible possible. It's a matter of our willingness to trust his word and accept that challenge as he does that work through us. Right? Because he never calls anyone to easy or comfortable or predictable. He doesn't. Yet I think far too often we hear his voice and we think, well, that can't be God. It's too big. It's too far-fetched. It's impossible. We're better off staying where we are because it's what we know. 
And so we miss the real freedom that comes without the limitations that we live under when we refuse to heed the call and command of God in our lives, no matter how impossible it may seem. I say it all the time. We live in prisons that we build around ourselves. Right? Jesus set us free from all of that. Think about when Jesus told the man who had been an invalid for 38 years, a lifetime, this guy couldn't move on his own, couldn't walk. John 5, Jesus tells him to get up and walk, and the man answers the command of, of Jesus. Now, after asking the man first if he wanted to be healed, he answers Jesus that he's been trying to make that happen, but nothing he tried in his own power would work. It was impossible. So Jesus commands him to take that first step. He says, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And the, the initial reaction we have is, man, that's awesome. I mean, how cool. This guy who couldn't walk for 38 years, now he can get up and walk around on his own. But just take a minute and think about that. Think about how profoundly his life had changed in an instant because he trusted the command of Jesus. Was it good? Well, of course it was good. Couldn't be better. But I'm going to tell you something. In, in many ways, that man's life just got harder. Became more challenging. Think about how much more would be expected of him now that the limitations he was living under had been removed by God. It's the same for us. God is he's ever calling us to step out, to trust him at his commands, to do what seems to be utterly impossible. But it's not impossible. In fact, with him, it's completely possible. But look, the moment, the moment we take that first step that we trust his command, everything changes. And one of the most significant changes that occurs when he removes the limitations that have been placed on us or that we've placed on ourselves is that all of a sudden, far more is expected of us. We're going to see that in the story of Nehemiah as the, in the Israelites as we go. And listen, I'm just telling you, we are going to experience it firsthand. Whether we purchase a new building or expand these facilities or build something, I'm just telling you, whatever it is, far more will be expected of us. We're all going to have to step up and meet those new challenges. And that's true in your own life. It won't always be an easy call. In fact, it will most assuredly be difficult at times. But the freedom that you experience is indescribable when you shake off the limitations of security and safety and comfort and predictability and embrace the impossible calling of God on your life. You'll have a lot more to be responsible for. But the freedom that you'll experience is infinitely more rewarding than anything those limitations can ever provide for you. And look, it's frightening. I can tell you from firsthand experience, it's frightening to take that first step when God commands you to move. I believe the invalid man by the pool must have been terrified the moment Jesus told him to get up and walk after 38 years of being invalid. Are you kidding me? But he trusted the command of Jesus. And so can you. Nehemiah was terrified to go before the king with his request. We'll see that next week. But he trusted the word of God. And so can you. D.L. Moody once said, God never made a promise that was too good to be true. Look, being faithful is not a feeling. It's not based on our best chances for success. No, being faithful is a choice that we make that's based on the faithfulness of God. It's spending your life exhausting your time and talent and resources serving God and others. Listen, whether you feel like it or not. 
That's what it means to be faithful. And it's a choice that is up to you. And then whatever success that may ever come out of that faithfulness, well, that part is up to God. For our part, we just need to continue to be faithful, knowing that a faithful life in Christ does not always resemble a successful life in this world. And that's okay, because he didn't call you to be successful anyway. He called you to be faithful. Which leaves us really with only one question left to ask. Will you? Will you be faithful? Let's pray.